6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We are in the epistle to the Hebrews. We're in the ninth session, but we're going to focus on chapter 8. And there are some commentators, J. Vernon McGee being one of them, that regards one verse of this, uh, uh, of this section we're dealing with, actually just, uh, the, uh, chapter 7, verse 25, but the, as, as the high point of the whole New Testament. And that's going to all be amplified here in chapter 8. So the epistle of the Hebrews. The first seven chapters, of course, present Jesus as the new and better deliverer. We went through all that, better than Moses, Joshua, and Aaron, and so forth. And we climaxed by this whole issue of the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek in chapter 7. We're now going to enter the next major section of the book, which is a better covenant. We're going to talk about the covenant, the sanctuary, and the sacrifice that uh, uh, are involved with this better priesthood. And then, of course, the last section will be the practical applications that will finish off the book uh, at the end. So, last time we were in chapter 7, we found out about this peculiar order of priesthood that will supersede. It preceded the Levitical priesthood, and it will supersede the Levitical priesthood. The order of Melchizedek, the strange character that shows up in Genesis 14 and then gets amplified not only in Psalm 110, but also in uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the, this epistle. But now we're going to move on and talk about the covenant that's involved with this superior priesthood. And, uh, but this Melchizedek priesthood goes from chapter 7 to chapter 10. It's the heart of the entire epistle. We spend a lot of time on the warnings because they're so misunderstood by the uninitiated, uh, under-informed uh, reader. But the real heart of the epistle aren't those warnings per per se, it's this priesthood. And uh, this is a unique uh, uh, section, it's the only section in the New Testament that focuses on the present duties of Jesus Christ. We obviously dwell a great deal on on His ministry, on the cross, on His death and resurrection, uh, but now what's He doing today? What he's doing today is mind-blowing. We're going to compare the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood because they're two different mediators of two different covenants. And so we're going to get into this here. In the last chapter, pick up just a few verses from the seventh chapter. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness there. That's a shocking term. That what's gone before has been disannulled. That's a heavy term. It means to abolish. It's the same word that's used elsewhere as putting away sin. This priesthood is being put away just like sin was put away. I'm not saying the sin and the priesthood are equivalent. Don't misunderstand me. But they're both disannulled. Same words used in both places. Christ's death put away the law. 
It's astonishing how many Christians, well-intended, fail to understand that. His death put away the law for two reasons. Because of the weakness, it could not impart the strength or justification. All it can do is show us the need for justification. It can't impart the strength to keep the law, and it can't impart the justification itself. Therefore, it's unprofitable. The, the law was unprofitable from that point of view. It could not impart life. It could show us the need to have a source of life. So the priesthood that is after the law can only be temporary. That's the point. It can only be temporary. The Levitical priesthood was understood by the prophets in the Old Testament to be temporary. So the law has been disannulled. That comes as a real blow to many people who are in a messianic movement. Christians get very excited, and appropriately so, to start learning about the Old Testament, and learning about the feasts, and learning about the, the practices of, of Israel. Because they all have merit, and they all point in some way to Jesus Christ. The danger that lurks is many get so enthusiastic about that, they find themselves trying to keep the Torah. They get, crawl back under the 613 rules and all of that business. No, that law has been disannulled. And that's what we need to understand. And this is a clear statement that the law has been put away. This was essential for Jesus to function in his new priesthood. If the law were still in effect, he could not be priest. He could be priest only because the law has been put away. That's a linkage that many people have failed to apprehend. So the writer, he is again making the point that the law itself didn't perfect anything. It simply shows us our need for a Savior. It's sort of like the dust on your car. It doesn't clean your car. It tells you you need to get a car wash, right? I mean, that's perhaps a terrible analogy, just... Let's go on. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Interesting word. And, uh, the, but the word testament, diatheke, the same Greek word means covenant or testament. We think of a testament as a last will, and there's ways that it applies that way. But it's also a covenant. It's, it's, a, it's a contract, if you will. This is the first of a total of 17 times that the writer uses this word in this epistle. In fact, it used 33 times in the entire New Testament, but half of those are here, in effect. Okay? The security of this New Testament is Jesus Christ himself. He ministers in a better sanctuary, by a better covenant, that's built upon better promises. So we're going to be dealing... Those things are all interrelated, but we're going to be dealing with this covenant. In this chapter, we're going to get into the sanctuary and all of that in chapter 9. Okay? Wherefore, this is Hebrews 7.25. It's, it's regarded by many as the key verse in the entire epistle. There are many riddles in the, in the, in the book that we talk a lot about. But this is uh, head and shoulders above almost all the others in what it contains. Wherefore, he, Jesus Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Wow. Okay. This is regarded as the high watermark of the New Testament by a lot of people, uh, notably James Vernon McGee and others, uh, J. Vernon McGee and others. 
Jesus is not dead. He is not on the cross. He's not lying in a grave. Where is he? He arose from the dead, and the emphasis of this epistle is on the living Christ. What he's done is important, but it's behind him. It's done once and for all. And that's important for us to understand. Our justification is past tense. It's a done deal. And he did it all. But now we're going to focus on what's he doing now? What's the encore here? The, the, the uh, uh, uttermost means completely, perfectly, utterly. To save them to the uttermost. These, are in these words intend to exclude nothing. There's nothing. It, it includes everything. It's as strong as you can get it. There's no condition. There's no situation which is not included. Wow. Whatever you've got on your hands, whatever's in your lap, whatever it's included here, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Uttermost. Okay. That come unto God by him. Here is the condition that they come unto God by Jesus. Not by Buddha. Not by Allah of Islam. You can fill in the blank with anything else. Uh-uh. No. By Jesus Christ. By Yeshua in the Hebrew. By Jesus in the Greek or the Jesus in the English. He is able to bring them to God by making intercession for them. That's also in Romans 5, 1 John 1, elsewhere, all through the scripture. But he is presently praying. Wow. His mission, his commitment is to pray for you. You know, that, that sounds good as a concept, but try to really grab that, that he is spending full time praying for you. That's staggering to really try to embrace. The more you think about that, the more you dwell upon that, the more overwhelming it becomes to think that the creator of the universe came and became man, accomplished his mission, went back, and there is now a man sitting on God's throne praying for you. Wow. Um, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Ever liveth to make intercession for them. See, the basis of your eternal security is that he can save forever because his priesthood is forever. When is his priesthood over? When is somebody succeed him? Never. He's got the job and is never going to disappear. It's forever. And he ever liveth to do what? To make intercession for you and me. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who, they're concatenating some ideas here. He became us. See, he is what we need. He's a man. He's not some other abstraction. Just as he is God, no question about that, he also is man. People overlook that. That was one of the first heresies in the early church. The Gnostics tried to say he was just a phantom. He wasn't really flesh. Yes, he was flesh. He became a man. He still has those scars. They shall look upon me whom they pierced. He still has, he'll, he, he still has those for, as an identity. He's holy. This one is holy. He, he has personal purity. He's not capable of sinning. His relationship, that's his relationship Godward. Okay? 
He's harmless. He's guileless, that is. He's without, he doesn't even have an evil thought in his life. He's innocent and harmless in his relationship, manward. The first relationship was Godward. This one is manward. He is, he is straightforward and honest. His word is pure, undefiled. He himself is undefiled. He's unstained. This is his relationship with respect, sinward. It refers to his moral purity in contrast to the ritual purity of the Levitical priests. Levitical priests were ritually clean in the sense they complied with certain rules that tended to symbolize cleanliness. They weren't really clean. They had probably all kinds of, you know, they had all kinds of sins they had to confess, etc. He had no sin of his own to confess. He is morally pure in contrast to the human Levitical priests who were subject to death, etc. He is separate from sinners. On the one hand, he's man, but he's separate from sin. In his life and his character, although he is right down here among us and wants to come, wants us to come to him. So he's he's separate, but he's among us, if you will, in that sense. And he was made higher than the heavens. This is the real trump card, if you will, because He's officiating not in some kind of replica, not in some kind of, of a symbolic substitute. No, no, no. He's actually at the throne of God in the heavens. Man, that's where you want representation. Right at the top, right? He's now in the very presence of God. He's sitting on the Father's throne. By the way, he's the first priest to be sitting. If you look at the tabernacle, we'll be getting into that next time especially. There was no chairs. The Levitical priests never sat down. That is why they're officiating. There's no place to sit. There's only one place to sit, and that's on the mercy seat. That's where God sits. And it's my personal belief that that's where Jesus will sit when he's ruling in the millennium. Because that, it's not the Ark of the Covenant, it's the mercy seat that's going to be the big surprise. But the point is, he is presently sitting on the Father's throne. Wow. This is probably the most awesome fact of all those that we're going to massage here a little bit. That he is sitting in the heavens. The third heaven, if you want to use the Greek term. And uh, now the next verse is, of course, the high watermark thing. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. The Levitical, the Levitical priest said, offering after offering after offering, because they were all rituals. They were all point, all there. They were all like object lessons. They each had a had an implication, a learning experience. No, he did this once and only once, and what he offered was himself. And uh, for this, he did once. He's our prime priest. He's able to provide for us because at this moment he's at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. There were seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, but not one place to sit down. And the priests were always stood because they were working. The Levitical priests were taken from among men. They were a public official. They gave gifts and sacrifices before the throne. They were not exempt from their own infirmities. They were not self-appointed. They were chosen and approved by God genealogically. And they had burnt offerings and meal offerings and peace offerings. And they had sin offerings and trespass offerings. The first three were voluntary Sweet savor offerings. They were offerings to God. Voluntary. The last, the sin offerings and trespass offerings were compulsory. They were required. And they were because of ourselves. 
And uh, so, for what it's worth, that's just a quick passing summary of, of uh, the Levitical uh, uh, priests. Christ is our high priest, and he is one of exceptional circumstances. He is there as the Son of God, not just as the Son of Man. He is without sin, unique in that respect, in contrast to the Levitical priest. The eminency of his order, that the Melchizedek order, is higher than that of the Levitical order. That's the point that we tried to make in the whole chapter 7. And uh, he has the most solemn form of ordination possible. The Levitical priests were chosen because of the genealogical line. They were sons of Aaron, so that's what it fell due. He is ordained by the oath of God himself. And that's what's in Psalm 110, verse 4, that we talked about last time. The excellency of his sacrifice, he offered himself, no spot or blemish. Every dimension of the priesthood, he is the ultimate expression of the perfection of his administration. He accomplished what others could only hint at. His office is perpetual. It will not be replaced. It's not transferable. And it'll never expire. Okay, that's all by way of review. Let's jump into chapter 8, verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of majesty of the heavens. Set, well, that, that's our high priest. He sat down since his work, his work of redemption is finished. You know, it's interesting to keep this in mind. On the cross, he said to Telestai, it is finished. Or another equivalent, paid in full. His redemptive work there is finished. Is he finished? No. He has had a couple of thousand of years of praying for you and me. And he's still not through. Because when he gathers the church, the Harpazzo, there's going to be the Bema Seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and all that on heaven, while down the earth we have the Great Tribulation, all that. He comes back, interrupting Armageddon, to set up his kingdom. His goal is to present that kingdom to the Father. It's going to take a thousand years to get it presentable. Wow, what's going on? Well, that's a whole study. But he's, got, he, he, he's not finished. He's finished with this part of the work. He's got a task ahead of him. See, anyway, no priests of Aaron's ever sat down. Neither did any Levitical priests ever sit down on a throne. They not only never did they seat, they never sat on a throne. Because Levi and Judah were kept, that was kept separate. A Judah, a, a, one of the line of Judah couldn't sit on a Levitical throne. No king could sit, could officiate in the temple, and no Levi could rule. Okay. In in the southern kingdom. Now we have Christ, who is both our priest and our king, in both roles, sitting in heaven. And he sits on, right now, he's not sitting on his throne. He's sitting on his father's throne. Now we know from Gabriel, not only a lot of Old Testament passages, Gabriel told Mary that her child, her baby, is going to end up sitting on the throne of David. He hasn't sat on the throne of David yet. Even yet. You say, well, that was just the... No, you get to Acts 15. The big debate at the Council of Jerusalem. James quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 11, that the tabernacle of David is to be reestablished, and Jesus is going to sit on that throne. And that's exactly what Isaiah, the government shall be upon his shoulder, name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, and so on. Okay, he now rules from the third heaven, but he's going to rule, yet future, from Jerusalem. The kingdom of heaven 
is tangible, physical, on the earth, has a capital, the floor plan of the palace is described in Ezekiel, etc. Okay. So we're talking now in chapter 8 about a new covenant. And this, by the way, is where the New Testament gets its name. The word covenant and testament, same word, same, same thing. And this introducing a new covenant, just the very fact you're introducing a new covenant tells you a lot. That means the old Levitical priesthood has been done away with by the cross. It's astonishing to realize how many people don't understand that. Now, to prevent his readers from... This is, this, the whole mission of this epistle in Hebrews is to prevent his readers from going back to Aaron and the old covenant. So the writer's trying to prove the superiority of the new covenant. So that's the real thrust of this whole epistle climaxes here in this, in this uh, uh, part of the essay. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Whoa, wait a minute here now. The tabernacle that Moses had was made by man after the pattern that God uh, specified. No, this priest is a minister of a sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched. Did the Lord pitch the tabernacle in the Old Testament? Heavens no. Did the Lord build the, the temple, the embodiment of that? No, man did. See, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not Levi, so he could not have been considered to minister as a priest under the old system because he wasn't a Levi. We find Christ in the courts of the temple while he was on earth, but never in the holy place or in the holy of holies. He couldn't enter that because he was not a Levite. Interesting. You never, you never saw him in the holy place or the holy of holies. And this is just the writer's way of proving the superiority of the new covenant because it's ministered from heaven, not from the earth. Okay? The true tabernacle. The writer is making a contrast here we want to be sensitive to. The wilderness tabernacle that we talk about, and also the Ark of the Covenant, by the way, was a replica, a shadow of the real reality. When Moses was up on that mountain, he was treated to an insight in heaven, a pattern to follow in making a replica on the earth. The real tabernacle is in heaven. The one that was on the earth was a replica of that. The true tabernacle was pitched by the Lord, not man. Moses received the instructions from the Lord on how to build this replica. Okay? And this is going to be discussed in chapter 9, and I'm going to give you a dozen chapters in Exodus to read for next time. When we're through here tonight. Down to verse 3 of chapter 8. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. In other words, a priest, is that's his business, is to offer gifts and sacrifices. Well, the, Levit the, Le the Levitical gifts and sacrifices are all detailed in the Torah. What's he going to offer? He has something fabulous to offer. Now, the, the writer here is going to present proof of the Messiah's exalted ministry with two syllogisms. Now, a syllogism is a major premise, a minor premise, and then a conclusion from that. So that's what a syllogism is. A major premise, minor premise, conclusion. And so we're going to see two of those here. The first syllogism is here in verse 3. The major premise that the priest's office is to offer sacrifices. You say, no kidding, Dick Tracy. Okay, bear with me. The minor premise is that Jesus is a priest. Therefore, his job is to offer sacrifices. But what he offered vastly eclipsed anything the Levites could have offered. Because Jesus must have something to offer. That's the conclusion. And that's going to be really detailed in chapter 9 through 10. Now, if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. And by the way, 
This verse, among other things, also indicates that the epistle of the Hebrews was written before the temple fell in 70 AD. See, because there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So that can only be occurring prior to 70 AD because it was destroyed from that point on. In fact, that's what he's trying to warn his readers about. Don't go back to Judaism. That's over. Not only is it over theologically, it's also about to be over physically. The second syllogism is in 4 here, speaking of the heavenly tabernacle, and that's going to be developed in chapter 9, first 10 verses. Since Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not Levi, he could not have been considered to minister as a priest. So we find Christ in the courts of the temple while on earth, but never in the holy place of the holy of holies. And this, only, this, only, this is put here to prove that the new covenant is superior. Why? Because it's administered from heaven, not the earth. That makes it superior a senior, a superseding. Okay, it sounds like we're beating a dead horse here, but you need to understand how hard it is for someone, this is written to a Jewish audience, who is aware of the fact that there are divinely appointed priests offering, uh, engaging in divinely appointed rituals in a divinely appointed place over there at the temple. They've got to let go of that. That's pretty tough. That's why this is hammering it so hard here who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was on the mount to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. This is, the, this is a quote really from Exodus 25. When God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, God gave him a pattern. A set of, I always visualize Charlton Heston coming down from Mount Sinai with two tables of stone and a bunch of engineering drawings under the other arm. Because the tabernacle, which we'll study in chapter 9, was a highly detailed uh, specification. The sizes, the materials, all the details, every one of them are not only relevant, they, every one of them point to Christ. And we'll go, we'll go through that next time. Okay? So that's the, so the true tabernacle, meaning the genuine one. See, well, that was, which is on the earth, highly venerated, but it was still a, simply a replica. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>